Hello listeners, it's me, it's Ed Fortune. I'm here on my own because Ninfa has been abducted by aliens. I think she's off to Hogwarts. And obviously I'm here with producer Al. Hello. Coming up on the show, I will be reviewing Christopher Fowler's Nyctophobia. And I will also be talking about Pat Mills's Nemesis the Warlock. Uh, been reading the Deviant Edition. The edition only allowed for Deviants. I don't know, really know what that means. Also coming up on the show, bit news. Um, yes, if you'd like to get in touch with us, then we have a Tumblr, a Twitter, a Facebook. Do we have anything else? Uh, we have an owl. Um, mm. Raven. They're a bit difficult to catch. Yeah, they are. Um, they're all radio bookworm, including including the raven. Uh, doesn't like it. Wants to be called Quark. Um, but yes, we, we're on the radio bookworm. You can also get to the radio station by fabradiointernational.com and you can get email us via bookworm at fabradiointernational.com or you can tweet us or you can Facebook us or you can tumble us. Um, feel free, basically. So coming up, we have a whole show full of lovely, lovely stuff. Oh, and we're also talking to Stephen Gregory in about the middle of the show. Across the world, 24 hours a day. So before we get into the book reviews and the interviews, we're going to do a bit of book news. Anything that ends in news, basically. So uh, we're going to start off with the fact that Ewan Coffer has uh, got a third deal for his Warp Time Travel Adventures. They are going to be uh, released on Puffin uh, through, and also through Disney uh, Hyperion. They are rumours, and these are just rumours, gentle listener, that it might get adapted into a Disney TV show. But um, we'll deal with that with a pinch of salt, I think. Very, very firm pinch of salt. Um, staying in the world of children's books, uh, the Super ha- Happy Magic Forest series... Mm, what now? Super ha- Happy Magic Forest, des- described as Totlin for to- Toddlers, which is the tale of Herbert the Gnome, Hoofus the Fawn, and Trevor the Mushroom, um, has, again, been inked um, by Oxford University Press Children's Books. Um, they're also, this sounds totally charming, uh, Matty Long is also going to be doing uh, a thing called Puppy Academy, illustrated by Sarah Horn. We like Sarah Horn, she's lovely. Um, the, the first in a four-book deal with Scout and the Sausage Thief, which will involve puppies who are training to be working dogs. But they're at Puppy Academy, so they're all about puppies. So- it sounds adorable. So, um, short version. Uh, what, what sort of jobs are they doing? Does it say? Um, working dogs, apparently. So, I'm assuming one of them becomes a guide dog. So, Puppy Academy is going to be produced by Gil Lewis, and Long will be producing the Super Happy Magic Forest. Um, staying in children's books, still, sort of, kind of getting into young adult here. Harry Potter Night. Harry Potter Book Night. Apparently, 5th of February is Harry Potter Book Night. This is a new thing, yeah? Yeah, it, I mean, it's a variant, variant on the various world boot nights that have been going on everywhere. 
Um, I expect various friends of mine who have kids to be complaining that their kids now have to dress up as wizards on short notice because schools tend to do the thing where, despite the fact that we know it's going to be, you know, Harry Potter boot night on 5th of February, I suspect parents won't find out until the 3rd. Yeah. Uh, quick, quick, put a, uh, put, put a corn on his head and say he's a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> That'll work. We'll, we'll, we'll tell and feather him and say he's an owl. It'll be fine. Uh, you can find out more information and also download the Booknight kit on harrypotterbooknight.com. Does it say why they've chosen February? Is there a reason for that? Because um, cause World Book Day in this country is like March, April-ish time, isn't it? So it's kind of relatively close to that. And I'd have thought with a Harry Potter thing, they'd have maybe gone for Harry's birthday? Apparently it ties into the, um, the, the release dates of the original publications. Mm. Tenuous. To me. Um, in 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 news of evil, I mean in news of um, the, the the corporate business world of books, Amazon have opened a physical bookshop in New York. Hmm. Now they're saying it's just a pop up shop. Hmm. Um, yes. Uh, how many times does it have to pop up before it's permanent? And they're just trying to avoid paying rates or whatever the New York equivalent of that is. I, I've got a, I've got a distinct feeling that this is not going to be a bookshop. Um, Looking at the various bits and pieces, the the on you know the various various reports we have on this, they all seem to be very very focused on selling Kindles. The Amazon Kindle. Also, it it it, it appears to essentially be a bit like an Argos click and collect, from yeah. what I can gather. If if you're not in Britain and you don't have Argos, it's a catalogue shop. You go online, you order your stuff, you wait twenty four hours, you go and collect it from a physical location. It sounds like that. I think it's going to be more like an Amazon store. Not an Amazon store, an Apple store. Obviously, it's an Amazon store. It's going to be like an Apple store. You turn up, there's going to be lots and lots of Kindles on little gimbals that you can play on and you can access the internet on and you can look at books and all the rest of it. There'll be some nice people who wander up to you and go, so, why don't you own a Kindle? You should own a Kindle. You should own a Kindle. I'm uncomfortable called Kindle and books are, books are flammable. Uh, it's just a name, sir. You should definitely buy our Kindle Fire or, or whatever. Yeah, pushing it a bit there. Or, or Amazon, our Amazon Fahrenheit four five one maybe. Anyway, they're doing a pop up store in, in New York. It's almost certainly a publicity stunt. It might be them kind of putting fingers into the retail chains. But leave the indies alone, Amazon. Come on, you're too big. It's one of the things I keep seeing is that there's an awful lot of things and things like the Economist and the New York Times and these sort of kind of and Forbes and they're all talking about how large Amazon is and antitrust laws and monopolies. Uh, and, and, and yet not actually as profitable as you really would expect them to be. But it's because they plough all their profits back into their infrastructure. <laughs> But um, that would be for some sort of business show, which we're not. Which we're not. A book show. Moving on. Moving on. Let's talk about New York Comic Con, because New York Comic Con's huge. Sounds very cool. It sounds very cool. It basically sounds like, you know, if if San Diego (laughs) Comic Con is glass and really sounds like Reading. Um, are you have you been entirely happy with that analogy? Not really, and it makes no sense to American listeners. But let's let's have this production meeting off air. Yes, but anyway, New York Comic Con sounds cool. We want to go. We we can't because we live in Manchester and we are. But to be fair, New York is a lot more accessible than San Diego. So things that have been announced at New York Comic Con so far that we're aware of, for example, Archie Comics has launched Archie Meets Predator, where Archie, the well loved, the well loved. Um, Ginger, who can't make his mind up between two girls, will be hunted down by Predator from the Predator movies, The Alien Hunter. Uh, it's going to be uh, drawn by Fernando, Fernando Ruiz and written by Alex DiCambi. 
If you think, where do I know the name Alex DeCampi from? Well, she wrote the Grindhouse comics. She also wrote the My Little Pony comics. So there you go. There's a there's a combination of skills that make her make her uniquely qualified for Archie meets Predator. They did do Archie meets Punisher, and that was very good. Actually, I enjoyed my Archie meets Punisher. It was very very silly. Um, Titan are claiming that they're going to do a book which is going to be very Scott Pilgrim like. Um, it's going to be called Charger by Andrew Gasker and Mike. Described as a Scott Pilgrim-like adventure. I think Scott Pilgrim gets evoked when they say cartoony and coming of age. Very much so. Valiant have announced that they're going to relaunch Valiant. Good luck with that. I never read it when it first came out. I don't think anyone else did, but good luck. Um, Dark Horse have reported that they'll be continuing the successful series of Avatar The Last Airbender. Despite the fact that the TV show is being scaled back itself. Um, They're also going to be launching... um, Two books by the writer and artist Kint, uh, Pistol Whip and Two Sisters. Um, and they've also got some of Top Shelf's uh, former stuff that they're going to be relaunching. That'll be very interesting. IDW is doing a whole load of Doctor Who, a whole load of Skylanders, and a whole load of My Little Pony. Moving on. Um, DC is continuing to try and take over the world with its TV shows. Um, in exciting event news coming up closer to Greater Manchester, um, because we can do this, uh, on the 24th to 26th of October, we have Rochdale Literature Festival, uh, which looks to have some, frankly, really cool stuff in it, um, including something that I'd be very interested in, uh, with an evening with Willie Russell. Ooh. Mm. Uh, also Dave Spikey, who's a bit more of a comedian. Uh, Tom Hingley. Uh, talking about his life within spiral carpets um, and various other people we will put a link to this on our various social media also coming up which you've just managed to trip across uh, the 36th Lancaster Literature Festival Thursday the 16th to Monday the 20th of October so that's next week um, Bernard McLaverty um, talking about various things the BBC Writers Room talk we'll talk more about BBC Writers Room later I think in this programme um, and various other things as well um, Hilary Mackay, the creator of the Casson family, Bally Ray, probably pronounced that wrong, very sorry. Um, and yeah, the, lots of events, lots of literature things happening in sort of autumn ish before it gets too horribly dark, too horribly early. Um, it's just dark, very nice. It's miserable. There's nothing else to do. Turn off the television and read a book. I mean, or go, out, go and listen to somebody talking about books. Yeah. So I think coming up next, shall we talk about the dark and shall we talk about books with yes. Christopher Fowler's Nyctophobia? So, Christopher Fowler has been producing books of um, rather, rather lovely and rather charming and rather haunting quality for quite some time. And his latest novel, available on Solaris, uh, which is out this week, is called Nyctophobia. Um, for me, it reminded me very firmly of James Herbert's style um, in some places, in the sense that it uh, takes the everyday and makes it kind of twisted. So, we have a, uh, the plot was, revolves around a newly married architect called Callie, short for Calico, because her mother was completely crazy, uh, and she falls in love with uh, a charming Spanish gentleman called Matteo. Um, he has a daughter, she's rather lovely as well, and they move to a place called Hyperion House, a grand old home in southern Spain. So, you know, they're even spitting this in Subkadiv to give you a rough idea. And this is a big, big spooky house. 
big spooky house but she falls instantly in love with it because she's a former architect and she finds the entire strangely you know it's built into the side of a cliff it gets the sunlight in almost every single room because of the way it's angled it's half the house is flooded with light and the other half is locked up and neglected and gets no light at all it's shrouded in darkness there's two people who who live there who are basically servants of the house who are paid by an estate rather than the house itself um, and you know, she's basically her husband who's an international jet setting kind of businessman runs off and leaves her to look after the house as the book goes on we discover that Callie is in fact scared of the door dark she has nyctophobia as the title suggests mm. which is unfortunate because this is a house that's been deliberately designed to always be in sunlight except for certain rooms which aren't and to being a curious type, she can't leave well enough alone. Um, okay, I really like Christopher Fowler. I, I, I like his work. I will pick up a Christopher Fowler book and devour it and then put it to one side. Um, excellent, you know, it's, it, essentially it's an excellent quiet Sunday's reading. Um, if I want to be waked out and creeped out, Christopher Fowler is on my list of authors to go to. Is this more of the same from Christopher? Well, yes. Short version, if you like his work, you'll like this. Is it any good? Well, yes, I enjoyed it immensely. Does it have its flaws? Oh, yes, it does. Um, so we are a review show. Let's talk about some of the things that you will love and enjoy. Firstly, it is set in Spain. It is not set in the expat community. Hurrah! Um, long-time listeners will know that this particular show has uh, strong ties to Spain. And frankly, we're very glad that these are you know, the character is an English person living in Spain who isn't living on a coaster, who isn't sitting there getting getting sunburnt for no reason. And the, the book does have a sly dig at people who don't absorb themselves into Spanish culture, but happen to live in Spain. This, this is a, you know... You can't get Heinz baked beans in the supermarkets, you know. <sighs> don't get me started. Okay, it's, moving on. It's just one of those things where, you know, the, the character has moved to Spain, to live in Spain, to, to be immersed in Spanish culture, and, and she does that. She does that very well. She, she finds some of the cultural differences a bit surprising. And yes, okay, she hangs around with mostly other people who are English, but who have been there for quite some time and have gotten into it. Um, the main character is a very, very unreliable narrator, and there were one or two points where I was sitting there going, hang on, what? What? As there's scene jumps and scene cuts, um, this is because the character is deliberately unreliable. Um, but but the thing is, it it's how aware you are of that and how accepting you are of that because a lot of books have an unreliable narrator. It, I think it becomes more and more apparent as as her flaws are revealed. So when we first meet the character, she's you know she's 26. She falls in love with a 44 year old man. Her her life is. You know, her, her, she's been swept on her, off her feet by this this, this kind of dashing Spaniard. Um, <laughs> she's now living in a huge house, and you know things are strange and new. And then slowly but surely, it's revealed that she had problems when she was a, a young woman. Uh, she had problems when she was she was a child. She has a strange relationship with her mother. Um, she has an even worse relationship with her now dead father for reasons that I will not spoil. But you know, they are trigger warnings, shall we say? Um, and it gets quite dark, and I don't mean dark as in a lack of sunlight. I mean it just gets quite dark in places. There, are, uh, there, there is the grown-up discussion of mental health in this in, in this book. There's grown-up examination of mental health in this book because this is an unreliable narrator who is being driven crazy by a traditional haunted house, or is it a traditional haunted house? Is it you know all these ghosts actually just things in her mind? That's pretty much what the book hinges on. Mm. 
at certain points I sit there going, that's a cheap trick. That's a bit of a cheap trick as well. And it is full of jump starts and jump scares, but it's also very gentle. This is not this is not a Hollywood horror style mm. tale. This is more like the traditional version of The Haunting, if you ever saw the original movie, The Haunting. Um, not that remake. Don't watch the remake. Ooh, don't waste your time. I've got to say, everything you're saying to me, the thing that leaps to my mind is Jane Eyre. I hadn't considered that... It's Young woman, terrible past, older man, bit swarthy, mental health issues. Possibly horrible... Unreliable narrator. Possibly horrible things in the house mm-hmm. that she's living in. I hadn't considered that it's actually a really scary version of uh, Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre's fairly scary. Jane Eyre's fairly scary, yeah. Um, actually, I think, I think you've got it there, producer Al. It's, it's, it's Jane Eyre with shadows and the cult conspiracy. Ooh. I think, I think that's a... I think that's a e, slightly, <laughs> slightly. It's an elevator pitch that doesn't describe the book at all, nor does it describe Jane Eyre. There is actually a very talented young girl as well that she looks after. The more I think about it, the more I think, hmm. Um, it is fun. You will rip through this if you are a, you know, if you're the sort of reader that likes to to tear through a ghost story, you will tear through this. One of the things I will say is that it's not a very layered book. There's one very strong idea here. It revolves on that one strong idea. A short story is normally something that has one idea. A novel is normally something that has several ideas. This book has one strong idea. That's fine because you don't need it to be any more complicated than it is. You just kind of just sit there going, wee, all the way through. It's a light but creepy read. It's perfect for October. Um, so tell us about it. Where can we get it? Is it out yet? It is out now. It's out this week. It is by Christopher Fowler. It is on Solaris Books. You can get it via solarisbooks.com for the ebook format. Um, you can also get it in your regular bookstore. And yeah, pretty much. Um, it's out in paperback right now and um, definitely worth your time. And we'll put some details of that up on the social media as well. We shall. So coming up now, we got to talk to Stephen Gregory. Uh, he's best known for writing the comment. Um, he currently has a book out on Solaris as well, which we'll talk about in the interview. Um, a word of warning <laughs> about the sound quality. We have done our best with the tape, um, but he was in Borneo when you were talking to him. In a monsoon. In a monsoon. So that, <laughs> that, that beating that you hear in the background... Um, isn't actually sound distortion. It is, in fact, the rain. On his on his metal roof, I think he said. On his metal roof. <laughs> uh, it's a great interview. He's a great chap. Um, he's he's a fantastic talent. Uh, if you're not familiar with Stephen Gregory, you become so, seriously, especially if you like horror. And you may have noticed that, this, that today's theme is things that are slightly disturbing. So talking about disturbing things, let's talk to the chap who's most famous for the comment, Stephen Gregory. This is Fab Radio International. Stephen Gregory, welcome to the Bookworm. Hi Ed, it's very nice to be here, all the way from Brunei in Borneo. So, tell us about your new book, please. Uh, yeah, it's called uh, Awakening the Crow. It's coming out with Solaris, I think, in the middle of November. Uh, it'll be my seventh book, and uh, actually it's the second in a, what was going to be a trilogy. That uh, Last year they brought out The Waking That Kills, uh, and Awakening the Crow now. And coming out uh, next year in January, actually as an e-book with um, a publisher called Pigeonhole, there's a the third book in a kind of trilogy, and that's called uh, Plague of Gulls. So Waiting in the Crow is another my, uh, what one of the reviewers called a fierce little novel, and it's uh, 
kind of dark, rather dense, disturbing sort of thing. And it's, as usual with my stuff, uh, it's got the, the central focus bird on a bird. So I'm very much into that bird theme, as you probably know from the Cormorant and uh, uh, the Blood of Angels and my earlier books. So that's coming out next uh, month, Awakening uh, the Crow, it's called. Your first book was called The Cormorant. This book also features birds. What is it with birds? Uh, that's right, Waking the Kills. Is, uh, I was writing about one of my favourite birds. I've been writing about for a long time, actually. And one of my earliest short stories uh, was called The Devil Birds, and that was about swifts, which I've always found particularly interesting. And uh, there's a lot of folklore about swifts, right? That comes out in the book, actually. The, the idea they appear from nowhere and they disappear just in the blink of an eye when they leave to migrate. And because they're dark and they fly around screaming and they got the nickname of devil birds, I think, years ago as a kind of uh, country mythology. There are all sorts of great stories about the swifts. You know, that some people used to think they, they slept at night in the bottom of murky, muddy ponds. They disappeared in, under the water and came out in the morning. And other people used to think they, they were the shadows you see on the moon. If you look up at a full moon at night, um, what we see as nowadays is shadows on the moon. But people used to think were swifts clinging there with their little feet. That's where they used to go at night. All these kind of odd little folklore stories about them. But going back further now, of course, my first novel, The Cormorant, uh, the bird is the main focus of that book. And uh, when I was a little boy, I was mad on birds and bird watching. So when I started writing my 20s and 30s, um, I don't know, just each book that came out, each story that came out uh, had, had birds as a, as a kind of focus of the story. Cormorant was famously adapted into a BBC drama. What other works would you like to see adapted to film? Uh, well, I mean, it would be nice, but I haven't had any other uh, film interest in them as yet. Um, I'm not sure The Woodwitch, which incidentally is coming out next year in a new American edition. Uh, there was a filmmaker in North Wales who was interested in that. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a particularly dark and disturbing book, I think. Um, I don't know, there's a screenplay I've written a year or so ago, which is currently with a filmmaker uh, over there in UK. So I'm waiting to hear something back about that. I, yeah, if you like, uh, it's uh, the script's called The Island of Swans. So there's that bird thing again. And it's set along the coast of North Wales. And uh, the main character is a teenage girl who's rather uh, uh, disaffected. You know, she's fallen out with her parents and with school. Uh, she's a rather petulant, um, troublesome teenage girl. And she forms a particular attachment with a writer, a middle-aged writer who lives out along the beach. Um, I guess it's got a little bit of, what was that, the Paul Gallico story, um, The Snow Goose. It's got a little bit of that kind of thing about it. But uh, it's a story I wrote a few years ago and, and wrote as a screenplay. Um, Why is your work so dark? Yeah, that, that is a good question, Ed. I mean, lots of people have asked me that, uh, all the way from my mother downwards, uh, wondering why I write the kind of dark and rather challenging stuff. And the answer is, I'm not quite sure. I mean, uh, when I went up to Wales in the 80s, uh, I, I quit teaching and think I'd have a crack at writing full-time. And uh, I had good ideas for, for a story or a novel, and the Cormorant was going to be the very, very centre of that. I remember scribbling on a piece of paper notes for the, for the story, um, and I don't know, I just decided at one point that it was going to go in, in that dark direction. I mean, otherwise it could have been a, a kind of a humorous thing about a man with a bird and... A little bit like you know, one of those vet stories. It could have been a, a funny sort of jape in North Wales with a bird running riot in a cottage. And, but I decided right at the beginning it wasn't going that way. It was going to become, I suppose, a horror story. Is the bird theme something that you draw your inspiration from? Yeah, that's, a, that's another good question. I mean, there are, there's a kind of uh, legacy of, I suppose, mythology 
and there have been other books and movies in which birds play that kind of role. But I know there are a lot of people who, although they like to look at birds, are very frightened by them when they have them in close proximity. You know, you can admire birds and be a keen bird watcher, but if there's one in your room flapping about and you have to try and catch it and put it outside, it can be a completely different, completely different thing. So I think that kind of duality of birds, which is interesting. But of course, you go back to Daphne du Maurier, and uh, um, I guess there are other examples where birds have a particular dark, you know, crown and pearl cross with the raven. And I, it's a kind of theme I've been mining throughout my writing. What next big thing are you working on? Um, well, I've got an idea for my very next novel. I mean, at the moment I'm having quite a, a good a good time with these novels being reproduced and uh, republished in America and with the Solaris collection, with the two new books, and then as an e-book next year, you know, The Plague of Gods. But beyond that, I've got another idea and positive notes for a new book. Um, I don't know about a bigger project than that. I'm just very, very happy to, to start a book, finish it, and then if it's taken up and comes out, that's the end product. Um, so beyond the next book, I don't have any idea of particularly different project. What other places do you draw inspiration from? Um, I think the answer to that is the, the English or, or perhaps the Welsh countryside. You know, I loved reading when I was a boy things like um, the Henry Williamson books, you know, Tark of the Otter, Sailor the Salmon. I was really immersed in that kind of world. You know, as a, a boy of 8 or 10 or 12, I just couldn't get enough of that. You know, getting into the, the Dorset countryside, the rivers, the streams, the, the night sky and all that sort of thing. And then uh, a little bit older than that, T.H. White, uh, the wonderful Once and Future King and his classic book about the, the Goshawk. So I, I really love that kind of thing. And a bit older than when I was reading what you might call more serious literature, uh, D.H. Lawrence was satisfying that particular interest in the countryside, uh, Lady Chatley, Women in Love. Apart from the, the characters and the story, I just loved the, the setting, really. You know, the, the English woodland and that. Uh, so when I went up to Wales in the 80s and started writing, I mean, I was just really in my element, with the mountains and the rivers and the beach. It was exactly where I wanted to be. Uh, and I guess the setting is very important in everything I write. If you met a 16-year-old version of yourself, what advice would you give yourself? Well, uh, 16. I wish I was 16 again. That would be great. Um, when I was 16, I... Um, Obviously, I was a schoolboy. It was kind of O-levels and that, that sort of thing. Um, I had a funny blip then, actually, where I lost interest in the countryside. And I guess that happened with lots of people in their teens uh, when you start listening to you know, pop music, rock music. So I was a boy in the 60s, and I couldn't put my guitar down. I was strumming my guitar and couldn't, couldn't put the thing down. I loved it so much. Uh, so if you'd asked me then about you know, walking the hills or along the beach or going through the woodland, I wouldn't be interested at all. I was in love with the, the pop scene, if you like. But that, uh, when I became a teacher after university and was working in Dorset and uh, other parts of England like that, then my love of the countryside came back. So advice to myself, age 16, well, that's a good one. Um, I guess I could have got more out of learning about music uh, from a serious point of view instead of just, just strumming the Beatles. And uh, I don't know, I, I'd already started thinking about writing and uh I postponed it into my early 30s because I was working. I mean, I, I was teaching full-time and I couldn't get out of that until I was about 31, 32. Stephen Gregory, thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thanks very much, Ed. I very, enjoyed it very much and um, still listening to the pouring rain out here in Borneo. So cheers and uh, very best to you. Embrace the Alternative with Fab Radio.
Hello again, so you're listening to Fab Radio International and this is The Bookworm. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, all the other things. You can also find us via Starburst Magazine um, via, and also our iTunes. Please leave a comment. Please tell us how much you love us or how much you hate us. Or oh, we're easy. Or tell us about your local independent bookstore. Yes, mm. we'd be much more interested in our, your local independent bookstore. Also, we are still running our Hachette and Amazon in Love competition. Which we'll talk more about in the next bit. Yes, we'll talk about that later. I've got Nemesis the Warlock, the Deviant Edition, in my hand. So, what's it about? Well, it's about a warlock called Nemesis, who's a deviant. Um, Essentially, it's a 70s comic strip uh, written by Pat Pat Mills and drawn by Kevin O'Neill. Pat Mills, of course, is an old steadfast of the industry these days, but back in the 70s, he was a bit of an enfant terrible. Um... What's Nemesis the Warlock really about? Well, it's about an alien, horse-headed alien being with magical powers um, who is part of a revolutionary movement because mankind has sunk into imperialism and barbarism. Um, Mankind is essentially a bunch of xenophobic murderers. We have gone out into the galaxy, looked at the glorious diversity of the alien beings that live there and have started killing them. Uh, mostly for personal political power. There is a creature that is unsubtly called Tokumada. Tokumada is a um, tyrant, essentially. Uh, there is an unsubtle religious tone that will be, which essentially carries on through most of Pat Mills's work to this day. I mean, his work is still political in a very left wing sort of way and is very certainly, well, it's anti religion very much anti-Catholic, that's not your taste, then avoid this like the plague. Um, if you can sit back and laugh at that sort of thing, uh, which I can, then that's fine. But if you're going to get offended by you know, parodies of the Inquisition, then then Nemesis the Warlock and companion pieces talking about it are not your sort of thing. So we have the Inquisition in space, and we have, an, and we have a decadent alien who fights them. It's a polemic essentially, and it's a beautifully illustrated, beautifully drawn scream, and it screams about, let's see, it screams about traffic, it screams about the tube, it screams about intolerance. Um, the first story, literally, they're flying in these kind of space tube systems um, and beating each other up, and it's a shout about traffic, but it's also a shout about um, about intolerance, about not, you know, about, about what the dangers of fascism. Um, it's utterly unsubtle. Totally unsubtle. I don't think Pat Mills has written a subtle work in his life. Possibly Charlie's War, but even then, Charlie's War, which is about World War One, is not subtle either. Um, is it fun? Yes. Is it gorgeous? Oh my goodness, it's gorgeous. Uh, the Deviant Edition actually is a fully colourised version because they, uh, in order to sell it to certain markets, they colourised the original black and white work. Looks beautiful. It's gothic. It's weird. It's a very weird. I mean, this this is a, you know a horse-headed alien sorcerer um, <laughs> who's who's running around who who's a and pumming his nose at essentially a, a, a intergalactic version of the darkest darkest excesses of the uh, Roman Catholic Church. Um, yeah, is it fun? Yes. Is it very English? Yes. Is it very European? Yeah, sort of. Um, Will you enjoy it? Probably. If you if you don't like the art style, you're in for a bad time. And the art style is very detailed, slightly messy. The, the colorization doesn't particularly help. Um, again, with a lot of Mills's work, there, there's no subtlety here. It's it's kind of idea after idea after idea after idea. Um, it's very left of center when it comes. I've already said. Uh, 
Yeah, um, Nemesis the Warlock, ladies and gentlemen. One of the one of 2080's lesser-known characters, also one of its most iconic characters. I would argue that the this particular DVD edition is the definitive work. Mm-hmm. Every single idea that's in here is a template for stuff that goes on later. Um, if you're only going to read one Pat Mills book, read Charlie's War. If you're only going to read one Pat Mills book, which is sci-fi, read Nemesis the Warlock Deviant Edition um, because it fills you know it fills the page, it fills you with, it fills you in on everything that you need to know, and everything that comes after that is you know more plot and more story and more of the same. If you enjoy it, start you know if you if you want to find out if you're going to enjoy it, start with this one. Don't just dive in because you'll get confused with all the, the weird politics and the strange ideas. Um, <laughs> But, but yes, um, I quite liked it. It was quite fun. Lovely. Shall we uh, Shall we move on? We're going to do excited chatter about books. I think we're going to get very excited about books coming well, up, yeah. coming up next. Those hands are playing the strangest musical instrument in the world. The only instrument that is not touched by hand. You ask for So, as you may know, the, the bookworm is based in Manchester. What you might not know is that we've just finished, or we're just about... No, we're finished. in the middle of. We're in the middle of. We're in the middle, in the middle of. of. There's loads more yet. The Manchester Literary Festival. Literature. Manchester Literature Festival. He said, not reading his notes, because, you know, reading pa. Um, it's only it's only been on the pull-up banners that have been at like the two events you've been at. It's only I think just right outside this building in a huge banner. To yeah. be honest, um, pe- people who know actually actually know where this building is. So be like, really, what? But anyway, um, so how did you? Because you went to I went to two events. You've gone. I've so far been to seven. I've got another one to go to on Monday. Um, yeah, I I have taken a week off from the boring boring day job, uh, and I've been to lots of things. Y- you touched earlier on in your review of Christopher Fowler's book about um, issues of mental health and the first thing I went to this week was a talk um, by Dowell Cunningham and Ian Williams. Uh, Dowell Cunningham is um, a cartoonist, Um, he's written books called Psychiatric Tales, Science Tales um, and uh, various other things um, including something about the economy shortly which looks quite interesting Um, his background is that he worked in a mental health facility um, then went off to do his training to be like a mental health nurse that and he was quite honest about this led him to have mental health issues of his own which he is now mostly I think sort of recovered from as much as maybe you ever do um, and is now channeling his energy into writing graphic novels um, and so him and Ian Williams were talking about their graphic novels which have both come out relatively recently um, they're from Myriad Editions um, and they were talking about that and how mental illness is a hidden disability that people still maybe don't talk about enough um, and all of their books talk about uh, touch on that at the very least. Um, Ian Williams is a doctor who, uh, as he says, has sort of moved sideways into writing about medicine these days. Um, and his book, which I really wanted to get, um, but I, I, you know, I left it more than five seconds to get to the table at the back of the room after the talk, and they had sold out instantaneously. Uh, his book is. Um, 
it's sort of a story about um, a doctor working um, in a remote part of North Wales, um, and it's ba- basically it's it shouldn't happen to a doctor. Uh, so if you're sort of familiar with James Herriot and it shouldn't happen to a vet, it's that, but for a doctor and more recent, um, as opposed to sort of the 40s, 50s. I always find those sort of things always worth the time. If you've not read uh, Confessions of a Policeman by Matt Delito, you really should, because mm. that's just a fantastic perspective into what it's like to be a metropolitan police officer. So... Um, Yes, so I went to... Uh, what did I go to again? I, <laughs> I, I went to the Anthony Burgess... You went uh, to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation, which is based here in Manchester, um, and which has, wow, lots more information about uh, Anthony Burgess than I ever realised uh, was going on. Um, they, in fact, got an, uh, an Observer Anthony Burgess Foundation prize for new writing about arts journalism, which, again, we'll put a link to on our various social media if you want to get in touch with that. Um, entries due by the end of October. Um, but the... Uh, right. session that we went to she said quickly Canongate Lates um, that was Friday night um, that was uh, Emma Jane Unsruff Annalise McIntosh uh, Zoe Pilger and Karima Francis Karima Francis being a singer-songwriter the other three being relatively new-ish early career stage writers it was an interesting mix there because we got mm. We got um, something that went on a lot about second and third word with feminism. Mm, yes. And I was sitting there thinking, I don't know if I'm in my audience for this. I understand what you're talking about, and you know, I agree with politics and blah, blah, blah. But the academic side of things, mm, it was a, it, she, the, the reading she made was a nice scene and I could see mm. that as a as a, a motion picture scene and I could imagine it in my head. Yes. I don't know if I could have read an entire book that was full of that sort of madness. I think it would probably be a challenging read. Um, my concern would maybe be that the people who should be reading that never will. Yes, that's what tends to be my... Uh, mm. thing, things that are polemical and feminist should <laughs> be read by people who aren't feminists. They should be read mm. by people who have an open mind or think they have an open mind but need to learn a little bit more about the world and its inequalities. Um, however, the highlight for me was the suicide note. Not suicide note, the uh, death instructions. The death instructions, oh, but, that, but she read those really well. It was a fantastic performance. Um... And also quite dark in places, yeah. and very warmly funny. But yeah, but in, in that sort of humorous, in that way that that the humour is delivering the punch of the brutal honesty. Yes, um, and just the the way it worked with the beats, it was very dark, mm. very mm. well done, and also a very appropriate venue for that sort of thing. Yeah, um, felt very intimate, and at the same time, also felt very um, permissible. Mm. Uh, and then um, Ms. Unsworth was the third reader, and she was um, she's a local author. Yes, that was that was the that was the friends that was the friends on the night out in Manchester. That was fun. <laughs> that it was funny. Felt very local. It felt very. It's, I had a feeling that the book was probably full of uh, of anecdotes. Yes, and that that apparently is her second novel. It's called Animals. Well, and the music was nice, but um, there was music. And uh, so, what other things did you go and see? Do we? Yeah, um, I, I. Well, last night, uh, you and I both went to see uh, in the dark, which was a bit more of a radio audio thing. Yeah, that was very strange. Very strange, but I liked it. Uh, yes, I enjoyed it as well. Um, we'll try and put as many links. To yeah, that yeah. Well. That that, that links-wise, this is going to take us a bit because there's a lot of people to talk about here. It's, it's going to probably take us most of the week to get through all of this stuff. Essentially, gentle listener, we went to a really, really cool talk and we stole a whole bunch of ideas that we'll eventually use in the show. Tuesday night, I went to Corey Doctorow. How was he? Oh, he was he was nice. Um, uh, really, 
really interesting. I actually surprised myself in the everything because I was like, oh, I might be a bit out of my depth with this one. Uh, but actually, I understood everything that he was talking about. And one of the things he was talking about was Amazon versus Hachette. Um, and the, the, I think probably the interesting thing there was that the reason this is happening now is because Hachette's agreement contract deal, sales deal, whatever you want to call it, with Amazon is the first of the major publishers to expire, which has a suggestion that we can expect this in the next few years with every other major publisher, depending on the view they take. But um, a lot of his talk was talking about digital rights management um, uh, and how that works and how that impacts and explaining sort of, you know, if somebody says to you as a, as a producer of content, oh, hey, put this lock on it, they aren't doing that for your protection. And so it was talking about that, and that, that was really insightful, I thought, and saying that basically the, the problem is that because major corporations have got the, the DRM lock put on things, even if you are the owner of the content, you can't give permission to whoever has bought your content to unlock it. It's the middleman in between who has that ability, and they ain't going to let it go. And the title of this talk was um, Information Doesn't Want to Be Free. And he's like, initially when I was approached to talk about this, it was supposed to be like information wants to be free. And he's like, no, information doesn't want to be free. People want to be free. Yes. If you look at the, hist- if you look at the history of libraries, information has never wanted to be free. People have always wanted to lock it away and put it on chains. <laughs> yeah. Chain up the dangerous books. Um, yes, and now, the first one we went to, um, Darrell Cunningham and Ian Williams, uh, that was in Manchester Central Library, which has recently reopened after a massive refurb, which has taken, I don't know, maybe two or three years. And actually, it was the first time I've been in that building since it reopened. When I was a teenager, I'm, I'm local to Manchester, as you may be able to tell by my slight accent. Um, as a teenager, I used to sneak off on school holidays and hide amongst the stacks and read whatever happened to be in the stack I was secluded behind um, and so I spent a lot of time there and this is the first time I've been back in since they reopened and it's it's they've done quite a lot to preserve like the architectural features of the building like the central um, librarian's desk up in the central reading room is still there albeit it doesn't have any function now it's just decorative but it looks fantastic um and that's how you used to get down into the stacks if you're on the ground floor you can see into the stacks where the books are still kept um and they've got a big archiving area um but interestingly on the ground floor which is the accessible bit is all the computers and the archives and the local history records and people helping you sort all that out the books the vast majority of the books are right up on the fourth floor there's an entire reference section with um, all the all the stacks of books that you, you press the buttons to open or close the shelf so you can walk down it in an attempt to preserve space. It's been really cleverly done. Um, but I was sort of like, oh, but that section of library that they used to have that I spent a lot of time in isn't there anymore and the reading room has changed. But it's, it's been very well done, but I'm concerned that some of the content has been lost. And we know if you read media reporting of the refurb that a lot of the books have gone. Mm. Um, also other things I've been to are uh, Manchester Salon Presents North and South which was a talk um, at Elizabeth Gaskell's house Elizabeth Gaskell um, who obviously wrote a lot of books set in Manchester or the surrounding area, Cranford is based on Nutsford which is a market town in Cheshire about 10 miles south of here uh, North and South is Manchester with a very thin veil over it We um, should really do some sort of special or give them we should. some special treatment Yeah, um, so on um, Wednesday 
evening I went along with Dell, who we uh, have had on the show as a co-host before now um, and we listened to a talk about um, North and South and it's relevant still um, and facets of the Industrial Revolution and bits of feminism um, and what they were saying was if you are looking at North and South now and you are relating it to the current time it doesn't become North versus South as it very much was in the original book it becomes and perhaps this was in the original book but was less obvious at that point it becomes North versus London or most of the rest of the country versus London and possibly the home counties um, because the difference between the two you know the North is very different from London and London perhaps doesn't really understand what's going on in the North or understand the relationship of the people or the place, how the place works but that's just as easy to say for the southwest and Cornwall, which you know is the south in the title of Northern South, but is so again so remote from London and so removed and so different politically and economically and socially that the people in London just don't understand it. Times have changed, and yet they haven't at all. Uh, they haven't at all. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're still having a revolution in Manchester. We've got now the digital revolution. At the time North and South was written, Elizabeth Gaskell was writing about the Industrial Revolution and Manchester leading the world um, in cotton and trade and industry. And now we're leading the world in the digital revolution. Um, the BBC up at Media City, their um, future development team, which I'm giving the wrong name to, but that's broadly what they do, they are known now, renowned, after only two to three years of being up here, for being world-leading in developing future tech for broadcasting and watching programmes uh, and computer software and that sort of thing and apps. But that's the history of Manchester developing new industrial applications. Um, you know, it's the home of the computer. Yes. Surprise, Americans. Um, yeah. Despite what you may have been taught. But yes. Um, so Manchester Literary Festival. I've, I've been, there's, 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 there's more. There's more. Uh, I also own BBC Writers Room. On Thursday night, I popped along to the University of Salford's Media City branch, which is again in Media City. Um, building goes on forever. Uh, I sat in a small room with about 120 other very enthusiastic people and Kay Mellor, who is a writer of drama, uh, ten, tends to write female-focused drama. Um, as she says, she grew up and she was watching lots of stories about men on TV. She didn't see the stuff about women, so she decided to go out and write it. Um, probably most well-known for starting her career as far as most people are concerned with Band of Gold. Actually she'd written various things on soaps as a lot of people in this country tend to do when they're getting into TV writing. Um, she was part of the Brookside cohort that includes Frank Cottrell Boyce who wrote um, the Olympic Games opening ceremony the other year for London 2012 uh, Jimmy McGovern who of course is a cracker and um, the street and lots of things like that um, she was part of that cohort with them um, and it's how she developed from there and she was talking about that a, a fascinating fascinating talk um, about sort of going out and writing her own stories and where she gets inspiration from uh, the watchword for which is do not tell a writer your inner secrets because they will end up on the screen somewhere. Absolutely. It's that old Stephen Moffat line where he he responds, where he's putting every single thing up with his divorce argument into, you know, it's like, oh, I'll use that, or I'll use that, or I'll use that in the middle of an argument. Mm. And 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 in fact, that is the show that he has written. Yeah, she was like, like, people come come to you and go, can I tell you something? And she's like, you're aware you're telling this to the writer. You are aware that I have put other people's lives on screen. And she says what she does when she's writing it is she looks at somebody who's maybe she wants to use bits of their character and then goes, okay, so they're this thing, but what if, you know, 
people in this sort of relationship but what if this happens what if this happens and she said at that point nothing is out of bounds you can sit in a room with people and band ideas around and come up with whatever you want and then run with it and see if it works well that's the key of the idea that everyone has a book in them yeah i mean you know on the book when we say that everyone has a book in them if you have enough lube but what what they're really saying is that everyone's life experiences are slightly different and it's your perspective that mm. matters mm. Um, yeah, BBC Writers' Room were one of the three presenters of that talk. It was Manchester Literature Festival at University of Media City in conjunction with BBC Writers' Room. The BBC Writers' Room, for anybody who isn't aware of it, is a fantastic resource if you want to write for the broadcast industry. Their page, again, has lots and lots of information about how to set out a script, what sort of things you need to think about in terms of character and story development, and also has a page to current opportunities. Uh, so they will talk on that about events that they've got coming up, which is how I found the Lancaster Lit Fest thing this morning, because they had a link to that on there. Um, and they also talk about current playwriting and screenwriting opportunities. If that is a thing as a writer that you want to get into, I would say have a look on there. And again, at some point this week, it's going to take us some time, we'll put up all the links to this on our social media, on our Twitter and our Tumblr and our stuff. At some point we should do a show on frustration, I suspect, <laughs> and getting into the writing game and how difficult that can be. Yeah. Are we running out of time? Uh, shall we? Shall we flee? Let's let's flee. Across the world, twenty-four hours a day. If you've tuned in for the bookworm, you've missed it. I've been your host, Ed Fortune. I've been here with producer Al. We've had a lovely time. I hope you've had a lovely time too. Remember to to share us with everyone that you want to listen to the show. We assume it's because you like them. Not necessarily, though. Um, So it's goodbye from me. The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab Radio International and Starburst magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune and A.L. Johnson. Produced by A.L. Johnson.